Driven Mofos, welcome back to another episode of The Underestimated Entrepreneur. Now, this here is part two of our three-part series with Dr. Patrick Chan talking about focus, staying calm, managing a team, and really just keeping yourself focused on what's really, really important, especially in critical situations. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Underestimated Entrepreneur, where I share mindset, lifestyle, and business hacking tips tools and some painful lessons along my journey from growing my businesses and also working with some of the top entrepreneurs, business leaders and professional athletes. What's the longest surgery you've ever had to perform? 18 hours, I think. 16 to 18 hours. So start in the morning and then finish. That wouldn't be even be the longest because we split it up into two days. So we did the first part finished at like 10 to 11 p.m. Start around 8 then come back the next day or two days later and then finish the operation two days later. So definitely a long operation. And it was in a kid with, they call it vascular malformation of the leg, life-threatening. Essentially all the blood vessels are abnormal. We had to take off that tumor. And because it was so many different blood vessels that we had to manipulate each one of them, like that's why it took so many hours. So you're just doing one blood vessel at a time. Crazy, right? What keeps us going? You can't stop. <laughs> I think it's adrenaline. You just keep going, but you have a team. It's not just me, it's a team. So you need to prepare for it. So before the operation, we plan. We plan with multiple teams together with anesthetists. You plan for a failure, you plan for complication. And yeah, you get help. So after a few hours, swap. After a few hours, swap. But you're still involved in the operation. Do you do debriefs after surgeries? I think debriefs are really important. As a trainee, I did a lot of debriefs because you want to know what went wrong and what went right. Right after an operation, you ask around, right? You ask the nieces, what do you think went wrong? What do you think? The people who know you most or know how you operate are the scrub nurses and the anesthetists. Not everyone who like markets, how well they market. So in the end, you want to know what you did wrong, what you did right. You write them down. I put it in an Excel sheet. And then I write down and log it. So every patient that I do, there's a log on an Excel sheet. And I have, oh, what went right? What went wrong? What's this different technique that this surgeon used and how long the operation took? And then when I see them in clinic, I just add on to it. I'll be like, okay, well, this is the complication. This is how it looked. Oh, I could have done this better. I could have done that. So there's always feedback. When you start something, you need to loop it back to audit yourself. And I think a debrief is a great way to audit on that same day, but you need another debrief, which is an audit, maybe in three months to see all your cases, how many complications you have. That's great feedback, yeah. I think, for all business owners as well as making sure you debrief on projects and days and weeks and all of that sort of stuff. I want to add on to that as well, because there's something new in surgery. It's, it's called patient reported outcomes, all right? It's called PROM. So in every surgery, so now they started in breast surgery. So doing breast reconstruction, they want to give the patients like an outcome form and essentially it's a rating of their entire experience. And I think that's important as well for you business owners but also in healthcare because it's not just about what we think of how we did, it's about what the patients think how we did. And a lot of times it's different because I can look at that patient and say, oh, okay, that looks like it's asymmetric but the patient's really happy. So then that reported outcome is different. Or I can say, oh, that looks fine, but then the patient's experience is different. You need those forms 
And you need that feedback at the end. So you're doing this really crazy long surgery. How do you manage your energy through that whole experience? Because we spoke before and I said, do yeah. you get a coffee? And you said, no, I don't really have coffee. Yeah. yeah, how do you manage your energy for that extended period? I think I'm used to it. <laughs> it's hard, all right? In the beginning, I think it's hard. You get used to it. So don't follow me because I don't have breakfast. All right, and I'm used to it. I've been doing it for like 10 years. I don't have breakfast. I just have a drink. Not right. vodka. Not vodka. <laughs> Water. <laughs> How do you manage your energy? You have breaks if you're getting tired. For me, music in the background, that helps me. For me, talking to people. I'm operating, but I can at the same time multitask and talk to someone else about oh, how they did what they were doing on the weekend. If it is complete silence and you're just operating, you will get tired and bored. And everyone in the operating room, the energy level is like really, really low. So there needs to be an interaction. And I think you encourage that interaction between scrub nurses with the anesthetists, but at the same time concentrating. And I think I've just got used to that multitasking and just learn to multitask, but not have that affect how, what you do. Are you very aware of your energy highs and lows, like I assume the first time that you're in that environment, and this is just an assumption that yeah. the adrenaline would be high, but then you know, then you start to fade out and maybe burn out a little bit or get tired. Over the years, have you found that you're very aware of not getting too up or too down yeah. and just sort of trying to keep it stable? I do realize that. So before an operation, because there's always an anxiety, you, know, you want to do your best job, there's always a level of anxiety. It doesn't matter whether it's an easy operation, there's always gonna be a level of anxiety because you want the anxiety. I think performance and anxiety is related. You want a bit of anxiety to increase performance, but you don't want low anxiety, your performance is, for me at least, you have zero anxiety, you're not gonna be pushed to perform as well. So you still want a bit of that, you want that challenge. I know when I'm up and down, I'm down after an operation. Like you can tell I'm really tired at the end of the day. How I manage that, if there's nothing else, I just go home and just relax. But if I still continue to see patients, then it's about prioritizing and then having breaks in between. If it's a long day, it's just not operating, it's also seeing patients, you're seeing emergency, you're seeing clinics, right? You need to prioritize what is most important. Which one of these patients is most important? I mean, it's like emergency, right? Someone comes through emergency, which one of them is most important? Which ones do you see need to do first? So I just manage accordingly. We were talking before about caffeine. You said yeah. you very rarely drink like anything with caffeine in it. Do you manage sugar and all that sort of stuff as well? Or? No. No? Yeah. I, I obviously <laughs> definitely like dessert. Well, no, for me, I'm probably not the best person to speak to about food because I eat up seven days a week. And that is because I don't have time. And so I don't cook. I eat out and I Uber eat seven days a week. So from a food point of view, I save time for convenience. That's also partly how I less my downtime. I don't drink coffee because it affects my tremor, especially if you're doing microsurgery or you're under a microscope and you're joining two blood vessels together. For me, at least, it's going to give me a tremor. So I've essentially taken it out. Sugar, I'm happy to have any sugar I want. <laughs> I have no problem with that. I eat anything I want. <laughs> Got a couple more questions and I'll throw some out to everybody else as well. With sleep, how do you manage your sleep? Like what sleep tactics do you use? And because I'm assuming if you're doing those 18 hour surgeries or long surgeries, yeah. you have to come home and sort of chill out and all that before. Does that affect your sleeping patterns or are you pretty good? I'm pretty good. So we got, we're on call as well. All right. So if I'm on call for plastic surgery, I can get calls in the middle of the night. So my sleep will be 
broken up, essentially. So you just expect that to happen. And I've just gotten used to it. If I have time in the middle of the day, I'm taking a nap. <laughs> if I'm tired, I'm just going to take a nap. If I'm on call, I know that it's going to be busy later. I'm going to need to do an operation later. I'm just going to take a nap now. I fall asleep pretty easily, so I have no problems with that. I can sleep anywhere. I can sleep on the floor. I can sleep underneath the table. So we used to do on-call overnight where you get so many calls and it's so tiring to drive home and then drive back and drive home, drive back. So I used to sleep underneath the table. And the problem was at the new Royal Adelaide Hospital, the lights are motion censored. And so when I roll to one side, <laughs> away from under the table, like then the lights turn on and I got to roll back. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions for Patty? Hey mate, it's just an easy one. How many surgeries do you reckon you do a year? There's small surgeries and then there's longer surgeries. So small surgeries can be like skin cancer or cataract skin cancer. That's still considered as one surgery. So I'll probably do over 500. And that was last year. I was just logging from last year, like 500 to 700. Yeah, depends on the year itself. So you can get through a, let's say you're just doing skin cancers and you can get through around 10 of them in a day. Yeah, but depends. Then you can have times when you're doing a large resection of cancer from the head and neck, and then you need to take tissue from somewhere else, reconnect the blood vessels so it flows, and that takes probably 12 hours or so. Yeah, or like facial trauma, like a jaw fracture that takes around three hours. So it just really depends. You're on call, for example, and by you saying there's only about 10 people a year get called up into plastics, how do you find, because if you're the only one on call, because there can't be that many people in plastics based on those numbers, how do you prioritise if something pops up, like, oh, we need plastics done as a priority on this person, but you're already prepared for this person, yep. then trying to learn that, what's going on with that patient yep. quickly, and then get the team up to speed with the variable change that I imagine would happen often. So fortunately for plastics, there aren't many like emergencies where I need to come in the middle of the night to fix. The only emergencies we get are, I'll start from head to toe, right? So facial trauma that's bleeding and they can't stop the bleeding, I need to come in. But is facial trauma that's just a fracture on the jaw, then I can wait till the morning to come in. Then other emergencies that I need to come in, if someone's taken off a finger, just for them to reconnect it, or we call it replanting it, then I need to come in. And then a necrotizing infection, so a bad infection where they're really sick and you cut out the infection. So those are our main three kind of emergencies. The rest of them, we can wait. But it's about prioritizing. So let's say you've got a cut that you think that the thumb, viability of the thumb is might be compromised. That's going to go ahead of something where someone's just fractured the hand. That's, there's no laceration. So it's really prioritizing. Now, in South Australia, there are or I think around eight plastic surgery trainees because it's 10 a year, right, nationwide. So there are around eight in South Australia trainees in, like throughout all five years. Across the country, around 50 trainees. Obviously, following on from that, yeah. then, if you've got to prioritise stuff, do you assess the situation and go, oh, I can put this third-year level trainee on them or how much hand-holding yeah. do you have to do building up to that? Yeah. Where you, now nah, you got this, I'm going to... Go back to mine. Yeah. And when you're a senior trainee or like finished plastic surgery, you kind of know where everyone is because there's a gap between the time you finish medical school and the time you start plastic surgery. In that time, that's like five years, at least five to seven years. 
in that time, everyone has different experiences. They may have done some plastic surgery, but they have done some operating already. So when they start training, they actually have some experience. They know they can do certain operations. So I think it's just judging and discussing it with that trainee. Can you do this? Are you comfortable? If you're not comfortable, I'll come in and help you out. Or there's always going to be another, someone who's slightly more senior to come and help him out, him or her. There's a multi-level protection kind of for the patient. So it's not a someone who is never done this before doing an operation on your hand. <laughs> it's not like a first year mechanic no, or anything like no, that. No, there. no, It is like an apprenticeship. Like our system is like an apprenticeship. Patrick, on the journey, obviously, to get where you are now, yep. um, there was some setbacks. You mentioned that you had some really big goals and you jumped them down to the smaller goals. Yep. When you got sort of the setbacks with those smaller goals, how did you stay focused on that end goal to where you are now? Yeah, so I think of it as these small little goals, right, are building blocks for your house. I get a setback, I'm gonna put a stronger brick. So I don't wanna jump it because then I'm not gonna be as good as what I want to be. So just think of it that way. There's a reason why I'm being rejected. There's a reason why I've been set back. It's because maybe I'm not good enough, so I need to get better to get the next job. So that's how I look at it. So I've been set back. So when I was in Victoria, before I got into the training, I was trying to apply these kind of one-year contract jobs in plastic surgery to try to get onto training. And I applied to like 10 or more in Melbourne. Couldn't get any one of them. I always came in second, second, second. Then I'm like, all right, something's got to change, right? So got better in interview, got better at communicating, went overseas, did some cleft lip stuff, come back, reapplied. Ended up coming here to South Australia. I always think that every step is a process. Every step along the way is going to make you better. The guys, you take an analogy to basketball, right? Or NBA. The guys who lose in the finals at game seven, the next year they're in the game seven, they're better than what they were last year. Driven Mofos, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. This is part two of our three-part series. Please, if you haven't already done so and you're loving this podcast, please remember to leave a five-star rating. All you need to do is click on the little stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to it on. It only takes about two or three seconds and it helps us to get more traction on these social media platforms. So it does make a difference. It'll only take you two to three seconds. So if you haven't already rated and reviewed this podcast, if you could please do so, it does make a massive difference. And I look forward to you joining me back here once again for another episode of the underestimated entrepreneur and part three.